RSPB Bird Notes for birds, for people, forever. The main subject for this, the second podcast, is avian flu. Walking along by a local canal at the weekend, I couldn't help looking at the ducks and swans in a somewhat new light, I suppose, fearful that they might succumb. Is the brouhaha in the press scaremongering or a valid reflection of a very serious situation? We'll be taking a considered view of the threat with Julian Hughes, the RSPB's Head of Species Conservation, in a moment. October the 29th was Feed the Birds Day. Did you feed yours? We'll be looking at how you can make your garden a haven for wild birds this winter. And, of course, the answer and the winner to the competition in the last Bird Notes podcast. Here's a reminder of the question. We asked, what bird is making this call? A red-capped, anteating bird, which, if a member of a rock band, would be the drummer. I'm Jane Markham with Bird Notes 2. Now, it's one of those news stories you find people talking about in the pub and in the bus queue, everyone trying to top everyone else with a scarier story. I'm talking, of course, about bird flu. Will there be a flu pandemic? And if so, when? How should the government or governments around the world react? Sometimes the press can make pretty frightening reading at the moment. Who would have thought that a dead parrot in quarantine could have made quite such a stir? We hear that poultry farmers in parts of the European Union are being advised to keep their flocks indoors. Now, the RSPB, along with BirdLife International and others, including the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, are evaluating the risk on an ongoing basis. A few facts and a bit of perspective wouldn't go amiss. Julian Hughes is the RSPB's Head of Species Conservation. Julian, it's the beginning of November as we speak. How do things stand? The H5N1, which is the particularly virulent strain of avian flu that everyone's concerned about, has been present in Southeast Asia now for a couple of years. Until relatively recently, it hadn't been spreading. And I think it's quite interesting that it hasn't yet spread anywhere south in the direction of Australia, which is where you would have expected it to go to if migratory birds were carrying it, because there's now been two southbound migrations out of Southeast Asia, birds moving uh, from the coastlines of Southeast Asia down into Australia. And Australia hasn't yet reported a single case of of H5N1 avian flu. But over the course of the summer, it has spread westwards. Uh, It's been reported uh, in the last couple of months in Kazakhstan, in Russia, and nearer the UK in terms of countries like Turkey and Romania and Croatia uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks during October. And that's obviously uh, been a concern because no one knows how it's being spread. It could be migratory birds. That's certainly, uh, you know, one one more obvious factor that people are looking to. Though uh, it has to be said that all the work that's been done so far suggests that wild birds tend to uh, die pretty quickly of H5N1 and and H5N1 hasn't been found in any migrating birds after they've migrated because it seems that they catch H5N1 and they die pretty quickly and dead birds don't fly. So we don't really know how it's been spreading into uh, Southeast Europe and Western Asia. Uh, It could be through migratory birds but equally it could be through movements of poultry and and feathers and that kind of thing or it could be through the, uh, the, the legal and the illegal trade in 
and wild birds. But wild birds haven't been affected in the past, have they? This, this is quite new, isn't it? Yeah, so wild birds have always had avian flu of some type, and there's actually 144 different strains of, uh, of avian flu. They've been recorded in, uh, in wild birds probably for millennia, and certainly the last sort of half century when, when uh, people have been looking, uh, you found avian flu in wild birds all over the world. Um, and it's, it, it, it's there as, as some, as a low, in a low pathogenic form. Uh, it doesn't actually co- cause the bird's illness uh, or to die. There's no outward signs of it. Uh, they can pass it on, but it doesn't actually cause a problem to either wild birds or poultry. The concern about H5N1 is that it's a particularly high pathogenic form and obviously the concern is not only can it have a devastating impact on populations of wild birds, but also uh, have a devastating impact on poultry farming. And ultimately, if the uh, virus was able to mutate and mix with the human flu virus, then obviously it might be able to be- become much more efficient in being transmitted from person to person. Now, there's no evidence that's happened yet. Virologists tell us that the world is due another global flu pandemic that could come from h5n1 but equally it could come from any one of a number of other sources there's lots of different strains of of uh, of flu from all sorts of animals that are mixed up around the world uh, and obviously to actually cause a human pandemic uh, it would actually need to mix with the human flu virus and then be spread much more widely from person to person if it gets to the uk it's much more likely uh, uh, as a global flu pandemic for people it's much more likely to come in a person on an aeroplane perhaps from the Far East, than it is to come from a migratory wild bird from Siberia. What about our own wild birds? What about our sparrows and our starlings? What, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the threat to them? Well, thankfully, it's not. we don't need to be too worried yet. All the birds in which H5N1 has been identified in the recent outbreak have been in water birds, so that's primarily swans, mute swans. The mute swans that we have in Britain are sedentary. They don't move anywhere. But elsewhere in the world, further east, they, uh, mute swans migrate. But they don't migrate anywhere near Britain but it's been found in swans and ducks and and wild geese. They tend to be the species that are most vulnerable to the extent that actually 10% of the world population of bar-headed goose was actually killed at a a lake in China as a result of H5N1 earlier on in the summer. So it's clear that it can actually have quite a devastating impact on populations of birds that are relatively scarce already. But as far as birds like starlings and sparrows and robins and blue tits are concerned, yes, they could conceivably catch H5N1, but they'd have to be in close proximity to some of those water birds, and that isn't happening at the moment. Of course, as I say, H5N1 is nowhere near Britain at the moment. The closest it is is uh, 800 miles away in Croatia. So we don't need to be too worried about that at the moment, um, and it's obviously perfectly safe to continue to put food out in the garden for your birds. Uh, that's something that lots of people enjoy doing, uh, get a lot of pleasure out of that during the winter months, and it can be quite important for garden birds surviving through the winter. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to stop that now. There's obviously uh, good, sensible hygiene measures that you can do, which people should be doing anyway, uh, because obviously there other diseases associated with birds such as salmonella. What sort of things would you recommend people do? I mean, cleaning out the bird feeders on a regular basis? Absolutely. Cleaning the bird feeders out uh, on a regular basis, ideally with a disinfectant, uh, and try and get, get into the habit of doing that once every two or three weeks, I think, would be perfectly sensible. And the other obvious thing is actually having refilled the feeder, and if you're birds in your garden or anything like the ones in my garden you'll need to fill it every day because the birds are taking lots of seed and nuts at the moment Uh, actually uh, making sure that you wash your hands after you've refilled the feeder just very simple sensible things that we should all be doing anyway Mm. what about if people come across a a dead bird Uh, uh, what what should they do well if they come across a dead bird 
The first thing is, don't worry, don't panic. It doesn't mean that avian flu has arrived. Birds die all the time. Uh, someone t- telephoned me up in a slight panic at the weekend because they'd found a, a dead collared dove in a car park in the middle of the town where I live uh, and had immediately kind of wor- worried, uh, for having sort of uh, read things in the newspapers, that this was avian flu arriving in Cambridgeshire. And, of course, it almost certainly wasn't, and indeed it wasn't. Um, birds die all the time. Birds die for all sorts of reasons. Old age, uh, because they get caught by, uh, by cats or by sparrowhawks, doesn't always mean that they have signs of, of having been caught uh, if you find them dead. Uh, but as I say, birds die of disease or starvation or cold all the time, and particularly during the winter, of course. Birds are more vulnerable to dying because it's harder to find food, and as the weather gets colder, life gets tougher for them. So birds die all the time. What you're looking, what we're really encouraging people to look out for, and particularly bird watchers when they're out in the countryside, particularly when they're out watching wetlands, as many of them will be doing over the winter, because they are fantastic places to see wild birds. We're asking people to look out for the unusual. We're asking people to notice, not that if they find a single dead duck, but if they find, you know, if they were to find multiple dead ducks, 20, 30, 40, that would be the sort of thing that would give a, uh, sort of give, uh, give people a clue. And if they do find that, there's a, a government helpline been set up and the, uh, there's, a, there's a phone number, uh, the bird flu uh, helpline, which is 08459 And people can ring, get some advice from, from uh, the f- officials at DEFRA who can make, a ju- can make a judgment as to whether it sounds like it might be uh, an avian flu uh, incident. And obviously, if it is, the thing to do is leave those birds well alone, uh, walk away. Uh, DEFRA would be in touch with the site manager to make sure that pass the clothes and that kind of thing while the tests are undertaken it takes only a day to discover whether it is avian flu but then another day or so to determine whether it is h5n1 so obviously you know um, during that period in particular it's wise to be cautious i suppose with an enclosed poultry flock um they cull the flocks that is that feasible for if there, if there was an outbreak with a big outbreak with wild birds it's neither feasible nor is it uh, nor is it wise. So it's it, it's not feasible because to be effective, you'd actually have to kill every single bird in a flock or in a population or in a area or in a region. And that is just impossible because, I mean, at this time of year, just to take the wash, for example, between uh, Norfolk and Lincolnshire, later on in the winter, there'll be about 300,000 birds there. And uh, they'll have come from all over northern climes, from, from the high Arctic, from Siberia, uh, from, from the northern latitudes of Scandinavia. And there's lots of birds there, hundreds of thousands of them. It's impossible to, 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 to cull. It's completely ineffective to cull, uh, to try and cull a large number of birds like that. And as I say, at this time of year, we'll have millions of birds arriving uh, all over Britain and Ireland uh, that will be uh, that will be migratory wild birds. So you, it's just actually unfeasible to consider how you would put the effort into killing that large number of birds. But more importantly, I think, as far as the disease spread is concerned, is that it would actually be a very unwise thing to do. Because if you start shooting at birds, not surprisingly, they fly away. So if you go into a flock of 300,000 birds and start shooting them, then you might shoot a small number, but the rest of them will disperse. And instead of having them sort of out on the mud on the estuary uh, where they're completely isolated from really from people and from poultry you'll actually you could actually uh, start having the opposite effect and start dispersing them spreading them onto the land where they're much more likely to come into contact with Mm. people and poultry do you think something like avian flu might have happened in the past and we just didn't know about it i mean is the fact that we know about it worrying us over over much well avian flu as i say avian flu has been around in the system from for many many years and it turns out from the recent studies that have been done in the united states that it seems that the 1918 um global flu pandemic 
pandemic, which is um, one of those astonishing figures, which actually it, more people were killed by flu in 1918 than had been killed uh, in the trenches in the whole of the First World War. And you think what, what staggering figures that actually involves. Millions of people died around the world. And uh, it, that was just known as Spanish flu. Nobody really knew exactly at the time sort of what, what had started it. All we knew was that people were getting ill and dying. It has now been determined that some recent research in America showed that um, that uh, 1918 outbreak was caused by avian flu. That was that uh, that appears to have been its origins. So it undoubtedly has happened in the past. We we do get global flu pandemics. Virologists tell us it's uh, that on average it's about uh, three every century. Some of those will have started in birds some of those will have started in mammals some of those will have started um you know from other sources so we do need to keep this in perspective it has been happening for a long time and of course if you now because of the kind of the world is on global flu alert um because there is surveillance going on in pretty much every country in the Northern Hemisphere now, it is inevitable that you will find it. Um, many of the incidents that have been reported in the last few weeks have been low pathogenic flu. Uh, it, there was a case in Canada over the weekend. Uh, there was a duck in Sweden. There were some gulls in Finland a few weeks ago. Those were all av- a, a low a pathogenic form of avian flu. And I suspect it, what we're now we're looking for it in, in Britain, that uh, it's quite likely that we'll find lo- low pathogenic forms of avian flu in, in, in the UK. That in itself is not anything to be worried about. There has been so much written and talked about avian flu over the last few months uh, in the papers, on the television, the radio, podcasts like this. Uh, in the past, I suppose, though, we just would have been blissfully unaware of anything going on. And I suppose the fact that, that modern science does understand it better means that we are better protected nowadays. I think people can be reassured at this stage that I think the UK is one of the best prepared countries uh, in the world for for, for uh, arrival of avian flu through whatever means. Um, the uh, the discovery of a, a dead parrot in quarantine um, in, in the last couple of weeks has illustrated that um, you know the quarantine uh, system is there and uh, and has a role to play in sort of biosecurity. And we welcome the fact the RSPB welcomes the fact that uh, the EU has suspended suspended the trade in wild birds. We think there's sound conservation reasons for stopping it anyway. And that's something we think that uh, the uh, government should be supporting over, over the long term. But as far as the uh, avian flu risk is concerned, I think people can be reassured. Um, we're very lucky in the, in the UK that we have thousands of people who go bird watching every weekend. We have thousands of people undertaking bird surveys for British Trust for Ornithology, for the RSPB and for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. That means there's lots of eyes and ears out in the countryside. If H5N1 arrives through migratory birds, we'll know about it very quickly. And the government has pointed out that we've actually had H5N1 in Britain before, in poultry flocks, uh, in Norfolk as recently as 1992. It was isolated, the poultry flock was culled, H5N1 was eradicated from Britain uh, cleanly uh, in a way that probably nobody noticed at the time. This time, of course, we'll hear about it, but we've got rid of H5N1 before, and hopefully there's a uh, quite a possibility of being able to do so again. Julian, thanks very much. Thank you. So did you feed your birds on Feed the Birds Day on the 29th of October? And more importantly, are you continuing to feed them? The day was carefully timed, of course, to coincide with the end of British summertime and the clock's going back, so we are now heading towards a winter that meteorologists say could be a cold one. The coldest for many years, apparently. Now, I use a seed mixture for the birds in my garden and different types of bird food attract different types of birds. Now, in the last couple of years, a little colony of house sparrows, as you can probably hear, 
because they're watching my every move, has <laughs> been increasing in numbers in my garden here. Now, they love the sunflower hearts in the seed mix. The finches like the Niger seed. We get lots of green finches. And although I do see the glorious goldfinches on the feeder, at this time of year, they also like this. The teasel, with its... Uh, you probably hear that, with its thistle-like seed head. Uh, it used to be used by weavers as a brush to raise the nap of their cloth, apparently, but the goldfinches love to sit on this, and they look gorgeous in the sunshine when they're doing that. But uh, you don't have to buy specialist food. Apples, soft apples particularly, and pears cut in half go down well, as do bananas and grapes, and don't forget they'll also need water. Now, one piece of advice from the RSPB, which for all as lazy gardeners we like to hear, is that it's worth leaving an area of garden to grow wild. Brambles, stinging nettles and dead wood are all great, and that's what I've got down here. It's not just for the birds, but uh, for some of the larger mammals as well, like hedgehogs, and I love hedgehogs because they love to eat slugs. Now, the next RSPB date for your diary is the Big Garden Bird Watch, which takes place in January. That's over the weekend of the 28th and 29th of January. It's uh, become a bit of an annual event now. And over the years, it's provided invaluable information about the fluctuating bird populations in the countryside and in our towns. If you'd like more information about how to take part or you'd like to see the results of previous years... You can go to the website, which is rspb.org.uk, or you can follow the link from the podcast website. And finally, that competition. We've had lots of entries from all over the world, from the USA, from Canada and Japan, as well as the UK. The prize is the RSPB Handbook of British Birds by Peter Holden and Tim Cleves. And the first out of the hat is Ian Douglas, who emailed birds at podcats.co.uk to say, the anteating, red-headed drummer described in the podcast is a green woodpecker. And that, Ian, is the correct answer. Congratulations to you and to everyone else who got it right. Bird Notes is a podcast production for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. If you'd like to hear other podcasts from Podcats, including The Antiques Man and Shakespeare Country, with more to join the growing list soon, go to podcats.co.uk.